You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hi, uh, there are two passages uh, this morning. Uh, first passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and do not have love, I am only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gifts of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, and where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in past disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of this is love. Uh, the second passage is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 2 to 12. And he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they, shall, they shall, will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, well, for most of us in this room... Uh, war is a concept. It's a, a breaking news event. It's a current affair. It's something we've studied in high school uh, and seen in the movies. It's something we've come to glorify and embellish in legend. The other day I counted 18 war history books in my shelf and I'm sure that that's a beginner's number uh, compared to some people in this room. For most of us, war is entertainment. 
uh, maybe even recreation or a hobby. Only a small handful of us have any other experience of it. Some might have escaped war-torn countries. Others here might serve in our armed defence forces. It's a small number of us. Currently, it feels like we can wake up, open the news app and read of some new threat or development happening maybe in the Ukraine with Russia or in the Pacific with uh, China. Some of our more globally aware members probably know about the many civil wars happening across the Middle East, uh, the constant back and forth of rockets between Israel and uh, the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip or threats of intercontinental ballistic missiles being semi-regularly tested uh, and often aimed towards the Japanese coast by North Korea. It can be difficult for you and I here in Australia to fathom the genuine suffering, the injustice and the bloodshed that is happening across our globe. We might be starting to feel the tension uh, of China's territorial games in the Taiwan Strait or their growing economic ties with our Pacific Island neighbours, but I'd suggest that the greatest squeeze that you and I are feeling is in our wallet at the petrol pump. When I first chose war and order as a topic, I thought I had snuck myself an easy issue uh, in this series. But while it might not be the spiciest issue in the cultural hot pot, it has proven challenging, and I, for one, have become even more thankful to God for his gift of his word to us. Uh, before we dive any further, let's pray and ask that God might help us to understand. Heavenly Father, we are in desperate need of your Holy Spirit today to help us to understand what you are saying to your people through your word about this issue of war and order. We are not in and of ourselves capable of having your mind or your thoughts on this matter. Help us to come humbly to your word. Help me to speak clearly and may we know Jesus better at the end. Amen. And as a, as a caveat for my sermon today, I think it's worth me acknowledging that I am not a member of our Defence Forces, nor have I ever served. Uh, similar to my sermon on race and reconciliation a few weeks ago, this is a topic that has not directly affected my life or caused me personally any suffering or hardship. I've been very fortunate, we've all been very fortunate in Australia, uh, to not have had any major uh, international conflicts on our shores. We came close in World War II with the devastating attacks in Darwin in 1942 uh, and submarine incursions in our shipping lanes and against Sydney, Newcastle and North Stradbroke Island. But thanks to our Defence Forces, those attempts were dealt with, resulting in uh, zero invasions of our shores. I say all of this to make sure that you and I are on the same page. Currently, uh, we can walk outside without any threat of war-like scenarios being a concern for us. However, all around the world, wars and rumours of wars are raging. 
This has been the reality of the world ever since the fall, and we can read about that in Genesis 3. The very first murder takes place in the second generation of humanity uh, when Cain killed his brother Abel. And from that time on, we have records of war in every generation of history since. The Old Testament is full of war. Now, this is a, a bigger issue than we have time to dive in today. I know that soon in the future, our church will spend um, a good chunk of time in a book like Joshua or Judges. Uh, and I think it's there that we'd have a good chance to understand what is happening when God commands the Israelites to devote to destruction every living being and thing of value of the Canaanites, including women, children and livestock. It's a difficult pill for modern Christians to swallow and it deserves a comprehensive treatment that I can't give us today. However, today we will see what the Bible has to say about war, about the Christian's place in war and conflict and by God's grace, uh, we'll come away from this sermon knowing Jesus more and better equipped to trust him in the midst of perpetually escalating violence and tensions across the globe. When it comes to uh, the opposing perspectives on war, the stereotypical ideologies uh, of both the left and the right apply. On the left, there's a, a general desire to oppose war regardless of the circumstances. Diplomatic solutions, economic sanctions and other means should be the vehicles for ensuring peace. On the right, it's common to see war as the best option for peace for the protection of one's national borders or interests or to protect other treaty nations which are coming under attack. Now, it's not fair for us to suggest that uh, the right has no desire for diplomatic options, but generally on the right, war is always on the table, while on the left, war needs to be brought onto the table and even then, it's still at the minimum level of warfare required. Interestingly, historically, Christians have played a major role in how uh, especially Western nations think about war and order. There tend to be four main views from a Christian perspective. Uh, they are non-resistance, Christian pacifism, just war and preventive war. It's worth our time today to consider these four views and assess the biblical witness to determine which ideas uh, most closely align with the Bible's teaching. And there are some variances amongst scholars who write on and debate these perspectives, but for our purposes today, I've relied on an article by William D. Barrick called The Christian and War. Uh, and you can look that up online. It's in a journal called The Master's Seminary Journal. So some definitions for us. Uh, Non-resistance is the idea that one cannot be a combatant in military endeavours. The most relied upon text for this perspective is Matthew 5, 39, where it says, do not resist him who is evil. This view emphasises that a Christian's role in the world is dedicated to the kingdom of God, uh, not the kingdoms of man, and has as their highest priority the work of the gospel. If a Christian is going to be enlisted in the Defence Forces, let them request non-combatant status. Although C.S. Lewis was injured as an infantry soldier during the First World War, he was convinced 
that the just war theory was the best approach, that a just war could be waged. If you read some of his essays, um, it is obvious that he wrestled with the ideas of non-resistance and pacifism and reflected especially on this text of Matthew 5.39. However, he concludes that this text needs some qualifications and lists uh, three options for interpretation. One is to say that it imposes a universal duty of non-resistance on all people in all circumstances. Two, another is that these words by Jesus are spoken as hyperbole. Or a third is to say that our Lord is addressing the daily trials that attend Christian discipleship and that the disciple is being cautioned not to react out of a retaliatory or vengeful spirit towards others. He concludes, war was not what his hearers would have been thinking of, rather the frictions uh, of daily life among villagers. Uh, The next perspective is Christian pacifism. And while it's similar to non-resistance, pacifism does not allow allow a place for Christians in the military at all. Uh, They must be a conscientious objector, even to the point of facing government punishments uh, for such objections. Theologically, this view emphasises that Christians are to be radically different to the world around them. And they are to counteract the warlike tendencies of the world and promote the love, kindness and peace of Jesus. Philip Jensen uh, helpfully identifies the problems with these two views. He says, we all have sympathy for these positions. The biblical image of heaven, after all, is of peace and harmony, where people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. The Prince of Peace will usher in the time when the wolf will live with the lamb. That, however, is exactly what I believe is wrong with the pacifist's position. It is the wrong timing. We are not in the Garden of Eden, nor yet in the heavenly city. Now is not the time for world peace. We are in the fallen world of human sinfulness where people do dastardly things and where God has given government's authority to administer justice with the sword. Pacifism is a godly mistake in that it fails to take seriously the sinfulness of humans, for monsters do exist and do need stopping. We are all capable of doing real harm to our neighbour and need the constant, sorry, the constraint of law and order and of good government. Next perspective is just war. Augustine, a 4th century bishop, is credited by many as the first to clearly pen a policy for what is known as just war. Uh, A list of criteria has been continuously refined throughout history and different proponents of just war have varying criteria, but a fair representation of the list would suggest the following eight points. One, a just cause is basically defensive in posture, not aggressive. The intent must also be just. The the objectives must be peace and the protection of innocent lives. War must be a matter of last resort when all attempts at reconciliation of peaceful resolution are exhausted. A just war must be accompanied by a formal declaration and a properly constituted and authorised body. Uh, The objectives must be limited. Unconditional surrender and total destruction are unjust means. 
Six, military action must be proportionate both in the weaponry employed and the troops deployed. Non-combatants must be protected and military options uh, operations must demonstrate the highest possible degree of discrimination. And lastly, without a reasonable hope for success, no military action should be launched. Now, unfortunately, just war theory is at the mercy of what each sovereign state deems just. This has been partially abated by international bodies like the UN and NATO, uh, but even Russia's unjust invasion of the Ukraine is a good example of where this theory can go wrong. The history of Christianity is also marred by an abuse of these just war principles. Uh, They've been distorted to suit the motivations of those that hold power. Many history scholars agree that the conception of the First Crusade had just war principles to it. For the large part, Pope Urban II saw the need to assist the Byzantine Empire, the, the remnant of Roman Christians in Jerusalem, who were facing decades of Islamic aggression. However, that's where the justness of these Crusades ends. Firstly, one of the major motivations uh, that Pope Urban II used to garner support uh, for this war was through the Roman Catholic false teaching of penance. The Pope declared that whoever, for devotion alone, but not to gain honour or money, goes to Jerusalem to liberate the Church of God, can substitute this journey for all penance. In other words, it became a holy pilgrimage, promising the forgiveness of the sins of these knights and soldiers who would go to war. Church, this is a false gospel. No man, no institution, no works can earn anyone any form of forgiveness or salvation in God's eyes. The Bible, our highest authority, the words that God gave us in order to know him and know his means of salvation, tells us that by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that anyone can boast. On top of this Manipulative false teaching, the Crusades also spiralled into mass injustice and sin by the slaughtering of many Jewish villages along the way to liberate the Holy Land. And in their taking of Jerusalem, they slaughtered thousands of non-combatants, including women and children. The last view is preventive war. This view is an extension of the just war position, uh, it supports preemptive action and uh, first strike options, including nuclear options, if that's necessary, uh, if an enemy's aggression is thought to be imminent or unavoidable. Preventive war adherents also advocate the use of military force to recover their territory unjustly seized by an aggressor. Such aggressors must be struck without warning while they are residing in their conquered territory in apparent peace. Uh, this view, while similar to just war, also opposes the very tenets of just war because preventative war requires proof of justice after the fact. And sometimes, given the severity of the war, that can be difficult to prove. 
So with these views laid out, which view best fits the witness of Scripture? I think that the theory of just war best suits the biblical evidence. However, I think we should also be sympathetic to the ideals of the Christian pacifist or conscientious objector. Because even though I agree with Philip Jensen that the timing is wrong, I do think that desiring to make a difference in the world by trying to model the peace and kindness of Jesus in an increasingly hostile and violent world also aligns with the kind of people we are called to be in Scripture. We'll take a look at um, some of the words of Jesus soon and see what it calls us to. But firstly, let's take a broader look across the New Testament uh, to see what it says about just war. How should Christians approach the topic of war, the topic of combat and the topic of joining uh, defence forces and other protective institutions like the police? Um, we can see in the New Testament that it does affirm the authority given to governments by God for the good of the people. If you've got your Bibles, come with me to Romans chapter 13. Sort of a classic text for understanding uh, governments and um, Christians' In regards to governments, chapter uh, Romans 13, I'm going to read verse 1 through to 7. It says, Let every person be just subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom um, revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. Paul, in this letter to the Christians in Rome, is expositing the very words of Jesus here. Uh, we can see in Matthew 22, Jesus tells the questioning Pharisees to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Paul is saying that God has instituted governments and rulers to wield the sword, to execute justice on the earth. And the sword imagery helps us to understand that they're to do this, but not just by saying, please. In our sin-broken world, we, as Philip Jensen said before, need to take seriously the sinfulness of humanity for monsters do exist and do need stopping. The Apostle Peter also backs this up in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. God has placed these authorities in the world to be instruments of God's justice. Now, we need to acknowledge that in this sin-broken world, 
we are going to have sin, broken governments and rulers. Unfortunately, we do not have any completely righteous or completely good governments or rulers. It's all sin, broken. Again, the Russia and Ukraine war is a relevant example of this. Sometimes it can be difficult for you and I to comprehend how uh, God has been the one who has placed Vladimir Putin as the president for Russia. Right now, there are hundreds of thousands of Russian Christians who would be desperately seeking God, trying to make sense of that situation and their place in it. And so if these governments have been instituted by God and, have been, uh, uh, and he has given them the sword to punish the wicked and reward the good, then what does it look like for you and I as followers of Jesus to live in submission to these leaders, even in the face of war and suffering? As I said before, war is currently not on our Australian shores. We don't worry about bombs being dropped overhead. We aren't listening for sirens and scattering to shelters. It might be our reality in the future, the near future, in fact. But right now, we have an opportunity to learn the biblical truths about Jesus, what he says he's done on our behalf, that we might deepen our trust in him, in his rule, in his reign, so that when the terror and hardship of war does come against us, we have a tight grip on the only sure means of salvation, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I've heard it said before that we should shout the truths of Scripture in light so that we can whisper them to our hearts in the darkness. And this is what we attempt to do every Sunday. Through the songs, through the prayers, through the sermon, our conversations, we try to do it in our gospel communities as we look to God's word and encourage one another in his truth. It's what we do when we read our Bibles every day and come before the Father of grace in prayer. To learn these truths, we should go to the words of Jesus uh, and particularly the ones that we just read in Matthew 5. Jesus says some things which give us a scope for how to live, but more importantly, why we can live in such a way. So again, if you've got your Bibles, come with me to Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to read from verse 2 through to 10. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This morning, I think it's worth our time walking through these verses and paying attention to what Jesus is saying and calling us to. Verse 3 starts, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think uh, that there are some uh, big assumptions about what these words mean, especially in our modern English language and Western culture. 
Listen to this explanation of the phrase poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are not lacking in spirit, but have the positive moral quality of humility, realising that they have nothing to offer God, but are in need of his free gifts. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, you surely realise that this was true of your spiritual condition before Jesus rescued you. The Bible tells us that none of us has anything that we can offer to God to make us right with him. We are all in need of his gifts, his gift of faith to believe in Jesus, his gift of the Holy Spirit to reveal our sin and help us to repent of it, the gift of his word that we might know the truth and be set free by it. We are blessed when we realise we don't have anything to give to God. But he gives us our everything. And this is why we can trust him. Verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We have to see this truth through a dual lens. On one hand, those who trust in Jesus are instantly Uh, comforted in their plea for mercy. God's righteous anger against our sin was dealt completely against Jesus on our behalf on the cross and in exchange we become clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. But on the other hand, there is still a lot of suffering and injustice and pain in this life. There are so many wars in our history, and even so many atrocious events happening right now. I was reading on Friday morning that in Myanmar, a country with a long and painful past of war is still in the grip of civil war. More than 15,000 people illegally arrested, at least 2,300 civilians are dead, and thousands upon thousands of men, women and children have been displaced from their homes from each other and from any comprehension of safety. There is a lot for us to mourn in our world. Church, there's a lot for you and I to be praying for in our world. There are a lot of people who are suffering and need to know that Jesus loves them, that he sees them, that he knows their pain and can give them a hope well beyond the grips of this world. Verse 5 continues, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, Meek is another word that we're not very familiar with, um, but it pretty much means to recognise our lack of strength before an almighty God. It's the form of humility that the Bible tells us God will bless. Similar with being poor in spirit, we are to know our impoverished impoverished state before God. We have no strength of our own with which to accomplish our own salvation or even fight our own battles. We are completely reliant upon a strong God who is our fortress, our strength and the one who can destroy both body and soul. You and I are not called to be soft 
We're not called to be walkovers or pushovers, but we are called to be gentle, especially towards our enemies. Verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In a world that longs for power, for control, for selfish ambition, God calls his children to be those who hunger, who desire righteousness, who desire goodness. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, you might have seen that yet again, we can be let down by the lack of righteousness, the lack of um, moral goodness in even the highest levels of our defence forces. News recently broke of a commando's unit um, back a few years ago on deployment um, and they they filmed and uh, this video got out. It's like a hype-up video for these commandos. The video is full of talking about how how many kills they're going to get, talks about how many dogs they're going to even find and kill and talks about making their quotas. It's shocking. It's upsetting. But unfortunately, it's not surprising. We live in a sin-broken world. A world that is anti-Jesus. A world that is anti-God. And a world that is completely satisfied in its own rebellion against God. But I think Jesus' next sermon point has our answer for this reality. Verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. A theologian, Michael Green, says, the merciful are happy in a way the legalist can never understand. They have tasted the sheer mercy of God who received them into the kingdom. They have come to share that quality of divine love and they will be shown mercy throughout their lives and at the day of judgment. Even in the face of unspeakable Uh, despicable acts like what has come to light regarding uh, these commandos, you and I are called to show mercy and to show love. We have been loved by the Father. You and I have been shown mercy by the Father. And as those who did not deserve it, as those who were enemies of God, He still loved you and I. Now, extension of this mercy to those around us is a countercultural way for you and I to be salt and light in this world. Verse 8 Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Church, you and I are not naturally, in and of ourselves, pure in heart. We need the grace, the mercy, the truth of Jesus in order that our hearts might be transformed. And with these transformed hearts, you and I are to love and serve those around us and this extends to our actions even in wartime. If you're serving as a member of our armed forces or in the police or some other uh, security organisation, this call from Christ to be pure in heart is foundational to your role being carried out with justice, a deep reliance upon the goodness and truth of Jesus is what fosters pureness. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be called sons of God. The word peacemaker uh, is a really interesting word for those Greek nerds out there. Uh, And I should be better at pronouncing this after two semesters of Greek, but I'm not. The word is aranapoios, which only occurs once in the New Testament and means one who restores peace and reconciliation between two persons and even nations. What a glorious picture of what Jesus has done for you and I, between us and the Father and between each other as well. Paul also states in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 that all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. My Greek dictionary tells me that when this Greek word that we translate as peacemakers is used in other ancient Greek writings, it is always referring to Caesar. Caesar, the one who has authority on earth to wage war, to end wars, to bring parties together and to ensure peace. As Christians, our priority is the proclamation of the message of the gospel, which is peace between mankind and God. But also, we're called to be agents of peace in this world. For you, this might look like becoming a pastor or a minister, maybe going to theological college, equipping yourself, training yourself to know the scriptures better, to be able to talk about them, to be able to explain them, to be able to help others understand what the gospel is saying for every part of our lives. Maybe you're a lawyer or you want to get into law. Maybe you can go and join organisations that fight legal battles for those that don't have a voice of their own, uh, for those who can't legally fight for their own human rights or maybe you serve in our armed forces or the police or maybe you want to join one of these institutions can I encourage you have peacemaking as the desire of your heart verse 10 finishes it out by saying blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven Lastly, church, we get to hold to this great promise. If you and I are to faithfully embody these instructions from Jesus, we will live very differently from the world around us, especially during wartime. And this will inevitably result in you and I being persecuted. It's been happening all around the world for all of history. Those that trust God's word and obey are persecuted for their looking and living differently to the world around them. And if war does become our reality, the temptation to act like the world will intensify. Fear, terror, self-preservation will all be instincts that want to lead us to live like those who do not have Jesus as their king or as their saviour. But church, we have this promise. 
that those who trust in Jesus, those who live in the great hope that we are held by him, knowing that he will not let go any that belong to him, we hope in this promise. If the band wants to come this morning, in finishing, because of that promise, we should consider some implications. One, the Bible does not oppose people serving in the armed forces, but instructs them to live and serve in a way that honours Christ, that honours the mercy that Jesus has shown to you and I. Second, we should pray often for our governments, for our leaders and those who serve in our armed forces. Now, we have an incredible opportunity to love and serve and pray for uh, the members of our defence forces. Unfortunately, in history, soldiers have been treated very poorly uh, with respect to to the type of war they've been involved in. Here in Australia, our history of how we've treated our Vietnam veterans has been appalling. Men and women who uh, were sent overseas to protect us from uh, the communist invasion, to protect our shores and, and ensure our freedom. When they came back from that war because of the um, perspectives about that war, we as an Australian society treated them horribly. We did not care for them. We, we did not want them in our towns or in our social clubs. We didn't want anything to do with them because of what we associated them with. And I don't think that aligns with Jesus' instructions to you and I as his children and how we are to treat any person, regardless of what they've done or where they've been. But I think we have an incredible opportunity with, uh, with returned veterans, with uh, those members of our Defence Forces right now, to be praying diligently for them as they might have to go into escalating tensions, to pray for our leaders as they consider what sort of measures uh, to involve in conflicts around the world. Three, we should pray often for those who are caught in war, innocent victims of war, especially those who are being unjustly treated. We should use the resources and the skills that we have available to serve them. And fourthly, we should not fear war coming upon our shores. In the face of future uncertainties, as those who know Jesus, we should continue to behold the glory of Christ, knowing that he rules and he reigns. His unmerited grace towards us, his secured victory over all evil and the great promise that one day he will return to rescue all of his children from all suffering and that in that day there will no longer be evil, there will no longer be any war, any tears, any pain, any suffering, but only joy. Joy in the pure, eternal presence of the glory of God. This is the great promise that we hold on to. To finish, let me pray Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. 
There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.